Are you struggling to lower your bad LDL cholesterol, even though you may be taking a statin, swapping steaks for salads, and exercising while listening to this podcast? Ask your doctor if Repatha Evolocumab is right for you. With Repatha, you can dramatically reduce bad cholesterol and the risk of another heart attack while enjoying life too, because you're human. And with convenient self-administration, you can take Repatha in the comfort of your own home. Do not take Repatha if you're allergic to it. Repatha can cause serious allergic reactions. Signs include trouble breathing or swallowing, or swelling of the face. Most common side effects include runny nose, sore throat, common cold symptoms, flu or flu-like symptoms, back pain, high blood sugar and redness, pain, or bruising at the injection site. Visit Repatha.com or call 1-844-REPATHA. Talk to your doctor today about Repatha. Do you remember when Donald Trump and his allies were very, very concerned about the mishandling of classified information. It was the thing they cared about almost more than anything else. Much of Trump's presidential campaign was premised on the idea that his opponent could not be trusted because she mishandled classified information. In fact, Trump's campaign was so concerned about the proper handling of government documents, they believed Hillary Clinton should go to jail. If I win, I am going to instruct my attorney general to get a special prosecutor to look into your situation. You know, it is, uh, it's just awfully good that someone with the temperament of Donald Trump is not in charge of the law in our country. Because you'd be in jail. Should Hillary Clinton be in jail? Yes or no, Mayor Giuliani, you know her. You're a prosecutor. If I did what she did, I would be in jail. If I did a tenth, a tenth of what she did, I would be in jail today. Remember the crowds at the Republican National Convention just thundering over and over again, lock her up. What they were actually saying was lock her up for mishandling classified information. Once Donald Trump did become president, he set about trying to actually do it, to put Hillary Clinton in jail because of her supposed mishandling of classified documents. On multiple occasions, he told top Justice Department officials to prosecute Clinton. He ordered his White House counsel, Don McGahn, to get the Justice Department to prosecute her. According to the new book from journalists Peter Baker and Susan Glasser, Trump not only repeatedly pressured his attorneys general to prosecute Clinton, but told Don McGahn that if they wouldn't, he would prosecute her himself as president. And so the White House counsel had to explain to Trump that presidents, um, no, they cannot prosecute people. That's That's not how any of this works. Donald Trump campaigned on it. He tried to do it as president. And here we are, more than a year and a half after he left office, and Donald Trump is still at it. After his no good, very bad day of legal developments yesterday, Trump went on Sean Hannity's show to vent about all the ways in which he has been mistreated. And hear Trump tell it last night what Hillary Clinton was accused of, having classified documents in her possession, was so bad, it might have been her emails the FBI was looking for when they swooped down on his Florida Beach Club last month. Seriously, that is what he said. I pointed out Hillary Clinton, which is, the, I guess, the closest case in modern history that this mirrors your case. I mentioned, for example, 33,000 deleted emails. We talked about Hunter Biden's laptop. So do we have equal justice in this country? And it's very unfair. It's a very unfair situation. There's also a lot of speculation because of what they did, the severity of the FBI coming and raiding 
Mar-a-Lago, were they looking for the Hillary Clinton emails that were deleted, but they are around someplace? Were they looking for the well, wait, spying you on Trump? You had it. Did, did no, no. They may be saying they uh, may have thought that it was in did. there. Okay. And a lot of people said the only thing that would give the kind of severity that they showed by actually coming in and raiding with many, many people is the Hillary Clinton deal. Yes, the only thing that would have justified the FBI searching Donald Trump's home is not anything that Trump did, but something that Hillary Clinton did. That's how bad what she did was. And no, I'm not going to try to explain why Donald Trump thinks the FBI was looking for Hillary Clinton's emails at his house. Now, despite years of trying by Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton was never prosecuted for having classified documents for a very simple reason. She didn't actually have any documents marked classified in her possession. But boy, it's clear that Donald Trump thinks that anyone who did do something that brazen and awful, like, say, if someone had stashed 100 highly classified documents in the basement of his beach club, well, that person should definitely get the book thrown at him. Lock him up. Wait a second. And by the way, in addition to his head spinning discussion of Hillary's emails last night, Trump also once again threw out the idea that the FBI had planted evidence when they searched his club. This is something he has said repeatedly over the past few weeks. Well, today, the special master in the case has essentially called Trump's bluff. Today, Judge Raymond Deary today gave Trump's legal team eight days to state officially in a court filing whether the FBI planted any evidence. Basically, it's put up or shut up time for your client's claims. This comes after last night's ruling from the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, allowing the Justice Department access to the 100 or so classified documents seized from Mar-a-Lago, documents Trump had been trying to keep the Justice Department from using in its investigation. I think we've all been expecting Trump's team to appeal that ruling to the Supreme Court any minute now. But here is something else to consider on that front. The 11th Circuit ruling was a pretty stinging rebuke to the Trump-appointed district judge, Eileen Cannon, who had ruled in Trump's favor, who ruled that the Justice Department couldn't even look at any of the documents seized from Trump's house. And today, that district judge amended her order to comply with the 11th Circuit's reversal. So now her order no longer says the DOJ can't look at those hundred classified documents. One question legal experts are now pondering is, does that mean there's no longer anything for Trump to appeal to the Supreme Court, even if he wants to? Is this done? And if so, what does the Justice Department do now? Going forward, will they have unfettered access to these classified documents they found at Mar-a-Lago? What will their investigation look like? After all, Donald Trump himself has spent years telling us mishandling classified documents is a very, very, very serious crime. Joining us now is David Rode, executive editor of TheNewYorker.com. David, great to see you. Thanks for joining me. So what is the Justice Department doing right now? Um, they are, now that they have these hundred documents that they can use, I think they, a law enforcement officials told me they're going to investigate the hell out of this. They want to now finally go question tons of people. Um, and a law enforcement official also said that they have some sort of leads that they want to pursue. One of them, and this is not confirmed, not confirmed, but they have a lead that possibly uh, Trump was showing some of these classified documents to people at Mar-a-Lago. Very reckless handling of classified And probably um, 
it, it probably dovetails with the criminal investigation <laughs> afoot here, too, right? Yes. That is not something a former president or any person can do. Yes. Show classified documents to a random Mar-a-Lago staff or exactly. whoever it was. So this is not confirmed. It's a lead they want to pursue. And Judge Cannon's orders block them from doing that because they were not able to use any material or any knowledge based on those hundred classified documents to question a witness. Well, you know, you were shown a classified document. What did it say specifically? What country was it about? Because they want to corroborate, is this person actually telling the truth? So their goal right now is to just investigate, investigate, investigate. In my sense, there'll be no, there is no decision yet on indicting Trump in terms of classified information. It will definitely not be until after the midterm elections. Do you sense that, I mean, there's this will he or won't he appeal question as far as the Supreme Court. Do you think that, I don't know if it's legal limbo, I'm not a legal analyst, but do you think that that at all circumscribes the Justice Department's actions in this hour? I don't think so. I think once they got this, you know, this big win, that was a very surprising win from the 11th Circuit, I think they've already started investigating the case. And, and again, a positive note here, um, this was opinion by you know three judges. Two of them were appointed by President yeah. Trump. They're young jurists. They're very conservative. Uh, judge Grant and Judge Brasher, and they had, they joined with an Obama appointed judge to basically just you know demolish to just dismiss this claim from Trump that he can you know wave his hand or think that and, and declassify things. These are and these are clearly classified documents. They're marked classified. They belong to the U.S. government. End of discussion. So. You know, he could go. I don't know. It's a strange thing. Judge Cannon did sort of removing that. You know, <laughs> she was supposed to wait. Right. And see if they were going to take it to the Supreme Court. And she just immediately amended her order to say you can use the hundred. Possibly because it was such a judicial thrashing from the 11th Correct. Circuit. The other thing the 11th Circuit did was say in no uncertain terms that the FBI's investigation was inextricably intertwined with the intelligence community's assessment. That is the office of the director of national intelligence. That's com- that's doing a sort of separate in tandem review to see how much this compromises our national security. What do you expect is going on on that front as the DOJ now has access to these 100 classified documents? They're, you know, I think doing a review of the intelligence community. And again, that part was stopped as well. Judge Cannon's, you know, order was sort of vague, but there was a decision in the intelligence community to, to stop the review. Were there human sources compromised during this period that these documents were in Donald Trump's uh, basement? Were there sort of special hacking, you know, that had been used to get information or, or you know, listening devices that had they want to see if there was damage as a result of the way he handled these documents. And this is all very important. Was he showing them to random people? Was there actual damage? You know, a human source may have been killed. I, there's again, none of this is confirmed, but all of that strengthens a prosecution. You want to tell a jury a story. And you want to say it wasn't just that these documents were sitting in a basement. It was that they caused real harm. Right. And so these are critical things. And I just I want to praise these two Trump judges. You know, a term that some legal experts have used is that the the judiciary, the judges are the last wall. Yeah. Many Trump judges stood up and rejected his false claims in 2020 of voter fraud. Yeah. And Judge Cannon did the wrong thing and I think issued a series of sort of partisan pro-Trump rulings. And I think we were worried that this was something we discussed last week, the Trumpification of the judiciary. We have a a pleasing rebuttal to that concept in in the ruling from the 11th Circuit. 
I got to ask you, in that vein, Raymond Deary, special master, he is a judge appointed by Ronald Reagan, a Republican from long ago, but a conservative, uh, has been checking Trump and his claims in real time, right? He began this whole special master process by asking questions about declassification, which Trump lawyers basically punted on. But now he's asking, he's pressing Trump's lawyers to say, is there anything in this tranche of documents that might have been planted by the FBI? Is there anything in this 11,000 document hall that wasn't actually at Mar-a-Lago that could have been from someone else? What is, how meaningful is it that someone like Deary is able to effectively check the veracity of these claims that Trump is spouting all over right-wing media and on the internet? It's terrific because, you know, a trial, and it's a really serious thing. Are you and I going to be prosecuted and maybe go to jail? A trial is a fact-finding exercise. Can you prove that, you know, this occurred beyond a reasonable doubt? And so Judge Deary is simply saying to Trump's lawyers, you know, you're making these wild claims publicly that these were planted. Prove it. Send me a list of which documents were planted. You know, you know, present that in a motion and then we will go through this piece by piece and see if you're actually telling the truth or not. So it's great. And yes, he's a Reagan appointed judge, but it's it, I just want to be hopeful. You yes. know, there are good conservative well, judges and, you know, two on the 11th Circus did the right thing. Judge Deary's doing the right thing. And it's just very important for people to believe that there can be sort of public servants in these positions, that not everyone has to be so partisan and polarized. Yeah, it's not even a question of glass half full or glass half empty. The only judge who's really done Trump's bidding is Eileen Cannon, the district court judge. And she did a strange thing today that definitely wasn't in service to Trump. So perhaps the judiciary is as strong as we have hoped it would be. We'll see. We shall see. David Rode, executive editor of TheNewYorker.com. Thanks for your time tonight. Much more ahead this hour, including what is behind this very curious scene in front of a federal courthouse today in Washington, D.C. These three suit-clad men have one big thing in common. They're all lawyers representing Donald J. Trump. But next, Mark Caputo joins us with new revelations about Republican connections to a Florida-based air charter company that flew migrants from Texas to Martha's Vineyard. Stay with us. Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated, all right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. This is the website for a private chartered flight company called Vertol Systems, or at least it used to be the website. The web design is a little dated, though it's got a lot of pictures of big, fancy-looking helicopters. 
under a section titled Unique Qualifications. They list exactly one unique qualification. Quote, VSC is the only civil company currently operating Russian helicopters in the United States. Good for VSC. I say that this is what the website used to look like, because if you go to that same website today, you get this. Looks like this domain isn't connected to a website yet. Thanks to the good folks over at the Internet Archive, we know that the website for that aviation company, Vertol Systems, appears to have gone dark sometime last Friday, which is important because that was right around the time it first became public that Vertol Systems was the company that got paid by the state of Florida to run Governor Ron DeSantis' stunt of flying Venezuelan migrants from Texas to Massachusetts using human beings to stick it to the libs. Governor DeSantis' administration is currently refusing to release the details of a $12 million contract it has entered into with Vertol Systems. The Daily Beast reports that Florida paid Vertol Systems more than double the market price to fly migrants from San Antonio to Martha's Vineyard last week. Why is this mysterious little flight company getting so much money from Florida taxpayers? It probably has something to do with the fact that Vertol Systems has numerous ties to Republican politicians in the state of Florida. According to NBC News' Mark Caputo, Vertol Systems' former lawyer, a guy named Larry Keefe, is now in charge of immigration policy for the DeSantis administration. And Keefe's former law partner, who also represented the company, is Florida Republican Congressman Matt Gates. The company, again, Vertol Systems, also contributed to Richard Corcoran, another DeSantis ally and former Florida Secretary of Education, who played a major role in overhauling Florida's civics education standards to make them more palatable to the Christian right. Vertol Systems also gave money to the campaign of Florida State Rep. Jay Trumbull Jr., the Republican chair of the State Appropriations Committee, a committee that helped secure money for DeSantis's migrant stunt. Governor DeSantis wanted this political play to keep him in the national spotlight, but he might not have anticipated how much that spotlight would also shine a light on his Republican friends and donors and cronies. Joining us now is Mark Caputo, national reporter for NBC News Digital, who has been uncovering a lot of the story for us. Mark, it's always good to see you. Thank you for this reporting. Let me first just start as our man in Florida. How is all of this playing for Ron DeSantis? He's up for re-election as a governor. There is a large immigrant population in Florida, Venezuelans, Cubans, many of whom are migrants who at one point might have sought asylum for political reasons. Is this working for him? I don't know the answer to that question. Uh, you know, we're in a polarized society. We're in a polarized state. I would like to see more polling about it. You know, it might surprise you, but when you talk to Republicans, they think Ron DeSantis is doing a great job. And when you talk to Democrats, they think he's doing a terrible job. And a lot of independents are focusing on other things. I think a lot of this depends on how this is messaged and handled going forward and also what the facts are when they go out or when they come out. And as you pointed out, we've asked for the contract. Everybody's asked for the contract. We have a very good generous public records law in Florida. It hasn't been honored by the DeSantis administration. Media companies eventually going probably have to sue. So there's been an odd level of stonewalling by DeSantis' administration. But if you also look at it from their perspective, the more this is talked about in DeSantis' world, the more they think they're winning on it. And maybe they're right, maybe they're wrong. He is sitting on a huge pile of money in his race for governor. And if you look at the polling, immigration generally favors Republicans when it comes to public opinion. So, as I said, it's too early now to really tell, 
Uh, we are in a polarized state and a polarized society. So l I would wait to see on prognosticating the exact effects. Well, I will say, you know, DeSantis is crowing about this on Fox News. As you said, Republicans everywhere are saying this is a great move by him. But the fact is, you know, let's let's start with the facts. Vertol Systems took its website down. Do we think that's indicative of anything? <laughs> have they been forthcoming with information as reporters have been asking for it? Oh, gosh, no. I mean, and as you pointed out, as I wrote today, you know, Vertol Systems got one point six million dollars for two flights, one of which didn't happen. We have no idea really what happened to that money outside of the fact that roughly 50 migrants were flown over from San Antonio, Texas to Martha's Vineyard. The state program that this was authorized under said it was for unauthorized aliens, that's a quote, from this state. But they didn't get them from this state. They got them from Texas. And that's not what the law says. That's not what the budget says that authorized this. In addition, these migrants were not unauthorized aliens when you talk to their lawyers. They said these were asylum-seeking migrants, mostly, if not all, Venezuelan, and therefore they were authorized to be in the United States. So a program for unauthorized aliens to be removed from Florida wound up enriching some company based out in the panhandle, an air charter company, to remove authorized aliens from Texas and take them to Martha's Vineyard. So... <laughs> We're trying to figure out the logic of that a little more, but so far we're not getting a whole hell of a lot of answers in the way of um, you know, understanding what happened. Not only are they flying migrants in the wrong sort of immigration category out of the wrong state, they're also doing it at, I believe, double the market rate, right? That's another point. That's the Daily Beast is reporting that the, this, the, the, the flight to Massachusetts was at literally double the rate for charter flights. And then, of course, there's the flight to Delaware, which gets scuttled, for which Veritol Systems was paid a million dollars that was empty. We don't know. The, the problem is we don't exactly know what they're doing with the money. Understand, to the best of our ability, in having read other media accounts, uh, listened to what migrants have told other reporters and what their lawyers have told me, and what's some agents of the state have kind of begrudgingly discussed. The state of Florida didn't just pay a company to, to just pick up a crew of people and, and fly them. It wasn't like they were just at the airport. These people were recruited by different vendors, different agents of the state, so to speak. They were given food. Now, these were fast food vouchers from McDonald's in San Antonio. They were put up for at least a night, these 50 or so folks at the La Quinta Inn in San Antonio. Some of them were given haircuts. Who knows what other money was used? There was transportation provided to the airport, and then ultimately there was air travel that was provided from San Antonio, ultimately to Martha's Vineyard. Exactly what was paid on the airfare from the air charter company that this air charter company chartered, we don't know. But this is something we should know, and one way to find that out would be to look at the contract, have someone answer some basic questions, and that's just not happening yet. And then when you step back and you look like, okay, well, who are the different people who've been affiliated with this program? Larry Keefe, who was dubbed by the Tallahassee Democrat as the public safety czar for Governor DeSantis, his portfolio, as you mentioned, is over immigration, and he was the lawyer for this company. So we would certainly like to know, well, did he recommend this company? And, and, and what was his relationship with this company when it was under discussion? Again, no answers. There are certainly a number of Republican ties to this plot that make you think maybe it's just slightly political. Mark Caputo, national reporter for NBC News Digital. Thanks, as always, for your time in reporting, Mark. Thank you. Coming up. 
Three high-powered attorneys. You can see them right here. They emerged from a D.C. federal courthouse today, and they all represent former President Donald Trump. So why were they there? But next, U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Linda Thomas-Greenfield joins me in studio to discuss historic protests for women's rights and much more. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated, all right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. These are scenes from inside Iran over the past few days. People out on the streets of the capital city, clapping and shouting in Farsi, from Kurdistan to Iran, oppression against women. In the northern city of Sari, women throwing headscarves into a bonfire outside of City Hall. Hundreds of miles to the south, a woman in the city square of Kerman, her head uncovered and a crowd cheering her on as someone helps her cut off her ponytail. While demonstrations and demonstrators clash with, clash with police in the street. Protests like these are spreading throughout Iran for a seventh day, despite a crackdown by security forces that have killed at least nine people and injured dozens more. Iranians are experiencing a near total internet blackout and apps like Instagram and WhatsApp, ones that demonstrators use to organize protests, have widespread outages. The protests were sparked by the death of a 22-year-old woman named Masa Amini. She died last week while she was in the custody of Iran's morality police, who enforce Iran's ultra-conservative dress code that has been in place since the 1979 revolution. Amini was detained allegedly for having some hair visible under her headscarf. Police say Amini was taken to a station for, quote, justification and education. A few hours later, her family was told she was hospitalized and in a coma after suffering a heart attack or a stroke. Three days later, she died. Eyewitnesses claim that Amini was beaten by police on her way to the station. The police deny any abuse, and Iran's Revolutionary Guard Corps wants the judiciary to prosecute people for spreading fake news. Iranian state TV released this edited video that appears to show Amini in the police station talking to an officer who points toward her clothing before she collapses. Iran's president, Ibrahim Raisi, who addressed the U.N. General Assembly this week, has ordered an investigation into her death, as has the country's judiciary. But there is significant distrust in the government's ability to figure out what happened to Masa Amini. 
Meanwhile, the U.N.'s acting human rights chief is calling for an impartial investigation. And today, the U.S. Treasury sanctioned Iran's morality police and senior security officials, condemning them for abuse and violence against Iranian women and the violation of the rights of peaceful protesters. Joining me now to talk about the situation in Iran and much, much more is Linda Thomas-Greenfield, U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations. Madam Ambassador, thanks for joining me on set. Thank you for having me. On this busy, busy week. Um, Let's just start first with the sanctions uh, that were announced today. There are so many sanctions on Iran at present. What is the goal here in terms of really moving the needle and and supporting these protesters? First and foremost, it is to hold accountable those individuals in Iran responsible for committing human rights violations. And this is truly a horrific violation. Uh, The killing of Amini, the blocking of uh, individuals from their ability to protest in the streets. Every Iranian should have the right to protest, and every woman in Iran should have the right to wear what she wants to wear without having to Uh, justify themselves to these morality police. For people who don't follow Iran closely, right, I think it bears mentioning that protests like this do not happen often in this country. The last time we saw something like this widespread protests was in 2009, 13 Mm -hmm. years ago, right? Does the U.S. see these protests as meaningful or indicative of a restive population and maybe something more greater down the line? Absolutely. People are frustrated. They are angry. Their ability to be themselves, that has been suppressed by this government and by the morality police. Uh, So this is significant. Uh, that this is happening at this time. It is a time of protest around the world, and there are large-scale protests also unfolding in Russia due to President Putin's recent announcements. You are in town for the UN General Assembly. I know that Sergei Lavrov is there, uh, your Russian counterpart. You announced, I think, before you, before the General Assembly even started, you said there are no plans at this time to have meetings with the Russians. They have not indicated that they have an interest in diplomacy. Can you explain the strategy there a little bit? Well, first and foremost, the Russians need to understand that this is not going to be business as usual for them. They have attacked their neighbor. Uh, they have attacked the core the soul of the, the of the UN Charter, they have attacked all of our values. So we don't want to treat them, even though they are a permanent member of the Security Council, they're not behaving with the responsibility that we would expect of a permanent member of the Security Council. So we, until they can show, until they withdraw their troops from, uh, from Ukraine, they don't deserve to have any recognition uh, that things are normal. Is there talk on the Security Council of taking any punitive measures against the Russians? Well, we certainly have already. They have been roundly condemned. Mm -hmm. That condemnation continues. We are stronger than we ever were before in terms of uh, the, the European Union, NATO. All of this was not part of Putin's plan. I think he thought that we would start to fray around the edges very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're much stronger as an alliance now than we ever were. And that alliance has, has really 
impose strong sanctions on uh, on the Russians and they're feeling those sanctions. I just wonder, because you're all in this conclave this week, have you talked to your Indian or Chinese counterparts about this? Because in recent weeks, uh, Prime Minister Modi and uh, President Xi Jinping have come out and been critical of Russia. Are you following up on any of those criticisms with your Chinese and Indian counterparts at the United Nations? It just happened last week that both uh, uh China and India, their presidents uh, express their strong concerns to the Russians. We're in the council for the first time uh, today. And I thought that their statements today were very measured. They were not in any way uh, pro-Russia. Uh, so again, this so is that's a good as good sign. as being almost anti-Russia, the fact that they're not pro-Russia. Certainly, they they did not condemn Russia in the same way that other members of the council did, but they certainly expressed their concerns about the consequences of this unprovoked war on the Ukrainian people. When we talk about that unprovoked war, how do you think of what Putin is doing? We talk about needless, senseless death, both Russian and Ukrainian. There are people who are comparing. I think that it's the International Criminal Court prosecutor, Karim Khan. He spoke to the Security Council today and said the echoes of Nuremberg should be heard today. Should we be thinking about Vladimir Putin in the way that we think of Adolf Hitler? Uh, we certainly should look at what he's doing in the same way we saw the beginnings of what Hitler was was doing. Uh, he has built a strategy around destroying a country, destroying a people. Uh, human rights violations have been committed. Sex, uh, sexual violence against women. Uh, people have been tortured. We have seen signs that war crimes are being committed. And we're working with the Ukrainians, with the International uh, Court of Justice, uh, the ICC to collect evidence so that when the time comes to hold uh, these uh, those who committed these crimes accountable, we have the evidence and we're ready. So you're hearing the echoes of Nuremberg, too, it sounds like. We're, we're hearing the echoes of gross human rights violations, torture, uh, the same kinds of things that we heard previously. Linda Thomas-Greenfield, U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations. What a time to be convening the world body. Thank you so much for your time and service. Thanks for joining me on set. Thank you. Much more ahead this hour, including possible reasons why three lawyers who all represent former President Trump were spotted walking out of a federal courthouse in Washington, D.C. earlier today. Stay with us. Next Wednesday, the January 6th committee is set to hold its first public hearing in two and a half months. While we do not know what the topic of the hearing is yet or if there will be any witnesses, there's an interesting development in terms of closed door interviews. Conservative activist Ginny Thomas, wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, has agreed to meet voluntarily with the committee for a closed door interview. And I am sure the committee will have a lot to ask her about. Ginny Thomas reportedly exchanged text messages with Trump chief of staff Mark Meadows shortly after the election, urging him to help overturn its results. According to CNN, after the election was called for Biden, Thomas wrote the former chief of staff, quote, help this great president stand firm, Mark. The majority knows Biden and the left is attempting the greatest heist of our history. Thomas also reportedly emailed an aide to Republican Congressman Jim Banks of Indiana saying she wouldn't support his Republican study committee group until she saw its members, quote, 
out in the streets. Thomas also emailed 29 Arizona state lawmakers urging them to overturn the election results, emailing to say that they had the, quote, power to fight back against fraud and ensure that a clean slate of electors is chosen. For the record, those clean slates of electors were, of course, fraudulent impersonators. If that all wasn't enough, Thomas tried the very same ploy with Wisconsin state lawmakers. Her outreach even extended, according to The Washington Post, to Trump lawyer John Eastman, who supported the pressure campaign on Vice President Mike Pence. And after all the behind-scenes maneuvering and cajoling, Ginny Thomas, the wife of a sitting Supreme Court justice, attended the January 6th rally, where, of course, Donald Trump urged the crowd to march to the Capitol and stop the democratic process. Like I said, there will be a lot to talk to Ginny Thomas about. Meanwhile, in a separate investigation into January 6th, this one courtesy of the Department of Justice, something curious happened today outside the D.C. federal courthouse. Eagle-eyed NBC reporters saw three Trump lawyers leaving the courthouse around the same time as the Justice Department's lead January 6th prosecutor. Now, we do not know why Trump's lawyers were there. But Jackie Alemany of The Washington Post reports tonight, per a person familiar with the matter, they were there, present in their capacity, representing Trump regarding the January 6th investigation. Hmm. Joining us now is Ryan Goodman, former special counsel at the Department of Defense, co-editor-in-chief of Just Security and law professor at NYU. Great to see you, Professor. Um, First of all, Ginny Thomas, willingly going to meet with the January 6th committee. Are you surprised? Are you as shocked as I am? I'm totally shocked. Your totally shocked is different than my totally shocked, for the record, but tell me why. Um, she signed a letter uh, that actually said that the two Republican members of the committee should be thrown out of the Republican caucus um, because she thought that the committee was so corrupt in her view. So, so combative, so allergic to this committee, um, saying some really uh, testy words about the committee. One would think that she wouldn't come forward voluntarily, but she seems to have made that choice. Do you think there's a legal incentive at the root of all this, that she'd rather go willingly than be subpoenaed? I think so, though, on the other hand, she could maybe fight a subpoena because time is on her side with respect to if the right. after the midterms, the committee does its final report and then has 30 days to sew up business. So it doesn't exactly explain it, uh, that should have that legal jeopardy hanging over her. But maybe it's also the legal embarrassment of a subpoena from Congress uh, that could be enforced with a contempt resolution from Congress. And that's a stain. It's almost a bet on the midterms, too, right? If the Democrats keep the House, the January 6th interest continues. A contempt of Congress uh, citation could basically a Steve Ban- pull in a Steve Bannon. That could be Ginny Thomas's fate. If the Republicans take the House, then, of course, it's a different story entirely. But she's got to figure out who she thinks is going to have the upper hand after the election. That's right. Um, let me just ask you, in terms of the Trump lawyers at the courthouse, and I know this is all a guessing game to some degree. But do you do you believe what do you think this could be related to? Is it is it Trump? Is it executive privilege? Where do we see the meeting of this minds? So if we think of everybody who's kind of in the crosshairs of the Justice Department, the most recent reporting from The New York Times is that Eric Hirschman, the former White House lawyer who gave fantastic testimony, to the January 6th committee in terms of credible testimony, very compelling. The New York Times says that Trump's lawyers were trying to block him asserting executive privilege for because he has been handed a grand jury subpoena from the D.C. court. 
there they are, two of the people that are mentioned in the New York Times report walking out of that courtroom are the ones that were the interlocutors with Hirschman trying to block him. And the New York Times report says that he said to them, well, if you get a court order to block me, then maybe I wouldn't testify. And then there's this kind of tantalizing end to the New York Times story, which is that his testimony has been delayed. So I, I think that's the most likely that we are in the realm of speculation. And how do you like the privilege claims on this? Oh, I think uh, it's pretty clear that they would be dead in the water in, in the D.C. Circuit. There is a D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals decision that is so squarely on point, And it says you cannot ex- assert executive privilege when you have a grand jury calling for your testimony. In fact, in that case, it was an incumbent deputy White House counsel. So even more so, there would have been uh, interests on the side of executive privilege for the incumbent deputy mm-hmm. White House counsel. Here we have a former White House lawyer and the incumbent president has waived executive privilege for the January 6th inquiry. So it's really remarkable. It's almost like they're setting themselves up for another embarrassing loss if this is what they're trying to do. Is it delay? I mean, we know from the January 6th committee hearings that Eric Hirschman has a lot of insider information regarding the plotting around January 6th, the attempt to overturn the results of the 2020 election. Yeah. So I think it's delay, delay. And he also seems to get that. So the Times reporting is that he says to them, you're not going to put me between yourselves and the Justice Department. And he's obviously cooperated with the January 6th committee. And he has bombshell testimony that I think would be he'll be a star witness. Let's put it that way. If there is an indictment coming out of the Justice Department. Okay, if we're talking about star witnesses, the big question, I think, is Vice President Pence. Right. Once you and and I think we all understand how far fetched at one point that seemed. But the the fact that Ginny Thomas is now willingly testifying in front of the committee, do you think there is a chance that Vice President Pence cooperates with the committee? I mean, I believe that Pete Aguilar, one of the committee members, said today, there's new information that we've received since our hearings that's helpful to our investigation. It would make the most sense for the former vice president to come speak with us. And we're still hopeful that that can happen. So in a certain sense, I never thought I'd love to see the day where Jenny Thomas would volunteer. Yeah, exactly. So I shouldn't discount the idea that Pence would. And Pence, we do think, may have given the green light to his people around him, his most senior aides, to cooperate with the committee, which Mark they Short. did. Mark Short, Greg Jacob. So at a certain point, you could imagine he would also see his duty in coming before this committee that has established its reputation and credibility in a way that I think would be appealing to him. It's they, and it's a safe space in a certain sense for the people that have come forward to tell their truths. I will say there was a, in an unrelated, an unrelated testimony, Secret Service Special Agent Elizabeth Glavy. She's one of uh, the top Secret Service agents on the vice president's detail, was asked today whether in her 13 years of service she had ever had a protectee, in this case, the vice president, come as close to danger as Mike Pence did on January 6th. And her response was no. That seems meaningful. If you're Mike Pence and you hear your service details saying that about the the hazard, the danger that you were in, I just wonder if that moves the needle in terms of his decision making. But also legally, what does that do to the case that is being built by the DOJ as far as the actions of certain individuals on January 6th? So it dovetails with his chief of staff's testimony um, that also said that he had anticipated there might be serious uh, threats against the vice president's life because Trump would turn against him on January 6th. So uh, if that is the case, at least in terms of the criminal case that could be mounted against Trump, one of the 
clearest cases is the pressure campaign on Pence. Because if he knew that the pressure campaign on Pence was included in that, a use of violence or the threat Mm -hmm. or implicit threat of violence, as well as that it wasn't within Pence's authority to do anything but count the votes, then I think that's one of the lowest hanging fruits, let's put it that way, for the Justice Department. And then to have people like this come forward I think that also puts something in the mind of Mike Pence, where he has to think, look, these are the people around me who protected me, who have served me. They've come forward. They've told the truth to the American public. And And this is also a venue for me to do the same. And now it's my turn. We will see. You never know with the January 6th committee. Ryan Goodman, former special counsel at the Department of Defense and co-editor-in-chief of Just Security. Thanks, as always, for your wisdom and, and thoughts tonight, Ryan. Thank you. Up next, a mega-aligned Republican running for a House seat appears to have lied. And now he is paying a political price? No, really. That is actually happening. Stay with us. When I'm elected, I won't bow to establishment pawns or power-hungry radicals. I will hold my own and demand that once again, America stands independent and strong like the country that I fought for. That was an ad for J.R. Majewski, the far-right Republican candidate trying to unseat Democratic Congresswoman Marcy Kaptur in Ohio's 9th District this fall. A pillar of Majewski's campaign has been his self-promotion as a combat veteran. Specifically, Majewski sold himself to voters as having served a particularly tough combat tour in Afghanistan. There's just one problem. The Air Force has no record of it. Yesterday, the AP got a hold of Majewski's military records, which indicate that Majewski, quote, never deployed to Afghanistan. His actual military service appears to just be a six-month stint helping to load planes at an airbase in Qatar, a longtime U.S. ally, very far from what most people would call a tough combat tour. Now, both the Cook Political Report and Politico rated this race as a toss-up. Republicans thought they could win it and were putting their full weight behind Majewski. Until today. Axios reports that the National Republican Congressional Committee has canceled all of its ad buys for J.R. Majewski. Now, I'm not sure if lying about your military service is a red line for the Republican Party or they just decided it was a hurdle Majewski wouldn't be able to overcome. But this is very good news for Democrat Marcy Kaptur and Democrats in the House overall. That does it for us tonight. We'll see you again tomorrow. Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated, all right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.